Hello, and welcome to the Neurodivergent Leader Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Heather Lynn Wagner and Donna McLaughlin. We believe that everyone deserves access to opportunities for leadership development and personal growth. That is why we are on a mission to destigmatize difference, identify challenges, improve outcomes, and empower neurodivergent talent with the tools to become the authentic leaders they were meant to be. We want to provide a safe space for the open-minded exploration and celebration of neurodiverse minds. We will spotlight the narratives of neurodivergent leaders, advocates, and experts, and share our own stories about educating, raising, and loving neurodivergent children. We will dive deep to reveal the challenges of being neurodivergent in a neurotypical world and discover the power of shifting from a negative viewpoint that focuses on deficits and brokenness to a more compassionate paradigm that promotes strength, acceptance, and access. We will challenge your concepts about leadership and who or what makes a great leader. We will lean into the discovery of who we are and who we aren't so that we can commit to our truth and become the best version of ourselves we can be. By the end of this venture, you will have the tools and actionable steps to activate your own exciting and individualized leadership plan. Whether you're an aspiring leader, entrepreneur, professional, or parent raising future leaders, we will have something for everyone. Thank you for joining us. Let's dive right in. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Neurodivergent Leader. I'm your host, Heather Lynn Wagner, and today's guest is someone who Donna and I completely fell in love with. She is brilliant, kind, humble, and she's doing some pretty spectacular work in this world. Our session was packed with so much amazing stuff, we made it a two-part episode. In this first session, we explore the dynamic work of sensory stories, the struggles of being a neurodivergent leader in the workplace, finding the spaces where we belong, and the complexities of masking and inclusion. So let's jump in. Welcome to the Neurodivergent Leader Podcast. Our guest today is Joanna Grace. She is a sensory engagement and inclusion specialist, trainer, author, and TEDx speaker, and the founder of The Sensory Projects. She is seeking to contribute to a world where everyone is understood and appreciated for who they are in spite of their differences. So welcome, Joanna. If you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to do what it is you do today. Thank you so much for having me. That's a really short way of asking a massive question. I, um, what am I? What is myself? I grew up on a boat. That's normally the thing I tell people first. I grew up on a boat at sea. I have a background in education and inclusion that probably is older than me because both my mum and my grandma worked towards a more inclusive society in their own way. But I first worked as a support worker for a brain injured gentleman when I was 13. Um, I have worked supporting children who have different abilities in mainstream settings, little tiny children, big, big teenagers. I'm a qualified teacher. I have a master's in special education. I've worked the majority of my teaching career in schools that provide education for children with severe and profound special educational needs and disabilities. And then since setting up the sensory projects, which is over 10 years old now, um, I have got to work with 
people of I think the youngest person I've worked with was one day old and the oldest is currently 86 so I get to meet all sorts of people in all sorts of different settings and I have been very fortunate to have got to write a number of books now and to have had them published and to do the TED talk and the things that you mentioned in your in your introduction and I'm autistic. Thank you for sharing all of that and so tell us a little bit more about the sensory projects. The sensory projects are they're based on the idea that you don't need expensive stuff to create effective tools for inclusion, effective sensory stuff. So I have a sensory shed, which is um, when we moved into this house, the, the boyfriend who helped me moved in was carrying all these boxes of treasure as far as I'm concerned, uh, and saying, why are we moving all this rubbish into this house? This just looks like recycling. So most of my work is done with using things that other people would throw away or recycle, or things indeed that I find in other people's recycling. That, oh, that's a nice cardboard box. Can I have that? And the point is that you don't need the stuff. What you need is the knowledge and the understanding and little bits of creativity. You don't, you don't even need a lot of creativity. It's, the, it's not what you've got, it's what you do with it that counts. And if you've got the information, then um, simple things can be very powerful resources. The sort of flip of that is that the selling of these resources is massive business. It's a big industry. I've, I've spoken to some lovely and very candid people who work within that industry. And I remember one of them saying to me, well, we just ship it in from China and we put the word sensory in front of it and then we triple the price. And he, and he added, he said, and if you put autism with it as well, you can up it another 20%. And people are making profit out of uh, vulnerable populations. And I'm not a fan of that. So... I mean, if you've got all the money in the world, do buy the stuff. I, I love, I, I have some of the glittery, sparkly, wonderful sensory resources and they're wonderful and you can do wonderful things with them. But just having them alone doesn't do wonderful things. So one of my most recent books was about multi-sensory rooms and I explored the research and history surrounding multi-sensory rooms. And that's just like a big example of that. You can have the most spectacular. I've been in a multi-sensory room that cost 1.2 million pounds and it was totally ineffective. <laughs> and I've been in like somebody's cupboard that they painted black and they'd got a torch in it and it's doing amazing things. You can do amazing things in the 1.2 million pound room and you can do amazing things in your cupboard. And it's the same with small sensory resources too there's there's if you know what to do with them they're priceless but if you've just bought them from a catalog because they somebody slapped the word sensory in front of it then it's maybe not so useful i want to touch a little bit further on that multi-sensory sensory instructional piece about why it's better joanna because a lot of people who are non-educators they don't understand what a multi-sensory approach means number one, and they also don't know why it's so much better for kids to, or any human being to use as access for more knowledge. Yeah. Okay. So it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. There's a reason why these people are making lots of money off it because they know it's great and it is absolutely brilliant. Sensory stimulation isn't just a nice supporting act to cognition. It's how the brain is wired in early development. So it's the foundation stones of your cognitive abilities. And it's also, and this is something that's really shown up during the pandemic, 
um, foundational to your mental health as well. So an engagement with the sensory world is good for your brain. It's good for your mental health. It's good for your learning. And I work, the majority of my work is done with people who have profound and multiple learning disabilities. So those are people who live lives through very complicated brains. Um, they have multiple physical, sensory, cognitive impairments. And I can use sensory resources to connect, to educate, to engage, to communicate because they remove barriers to access. And it just kind of stands to reason, doesn't it? If it removes barriers to access to people who face so many barriers, then of course it's going to remove them for everybody else as well. And I do a thing on the sensory projects called sensory stories, which are very concise narratives. So a sensory story is normally told. I give myself as a rule of thumb, I have a maximum of 10 sentences to tell a sensory story. And then each of those sentences is partnered with a rich and relevant sensory experience and I'm quite the connoisseur of sensory experiences so I could talk about that for far longer than you would run a podcast but you know I choose good ones and the meaning of those stories is carried in the words and it's carried in the experiences and so you can access it at a purely sensory level you can access it at a purely verbal you know text-based level or you can do a mixture and if you think about the lessons that you remember from school they will be the ones with the Bunsen burners in or the drama lessons or um, the cookery lessons. They'll be the ones that had sensory elements in them. And so if I can tell you a sensory story, I will pin it in your memory because all of your more of your brain is involved when you have sensation. Literally, you see it in the scanners, more bits of your brain are lighting up. And I tell sensory stories. I have um, I have tw 25 published on the sensory project currently and a further uh, I think it's 12 have been published by other publishers and it's a growing library and there are other authors of sensory stories and publishers of sensory stories out there we're all you know we've all each got our own style my stories are often um I was going to say quite highbrow. I've got one about how stars are formed in stellar nurseries. I've got one that's told in Haikyuu. I've got a retelling of the King Arthur story of Sleeping Beauty. I've got lots of sciencey sort of narratives. I've got the, the life cycle of a dandelion is fascinating and it makes a great sensory story. So yeah, they, they are a wonderful thing and a sensory approach to education is fantastic for supporting engagement and also supporting mental health as you go along, which post pandemic or during pandemic, because we're not quite post pandemic yet, are we, is particularly relevant. Yeah, and that's, again, I'm going to stay on the educator thread for a second here. You know, when you talk a little bit about differentiation and you talk about differentiating from the bottom up instead of the top down, which I found to be this really amazing idea because in college, when you learn to be an educator, they don't teach you that. They teach you there are three different ways to differentiate, and that is product, process, and content. And so oh. they really don't, at least in the U.S., that's how we're, you know, that's how we're, we're yeah. taught. And then they do tell you to kind of get information, learning style information and, you know, surveys and things that you do with students to try to figure out where they're able to access best, but it tends to stay into a thread of either visual or auditory. So talk a little bit about differentiating from the bottom up instead of the top down, because I think that's a, that's a really interesting idea. I think, yeah, it's, it's fun as well. And it's a real challenge. If you are somebody who has a 
good understanding of a topic, one of the hardest things is to explain it clearly. You know, some of the brilliant professors that you get in the universities are people who can appear on like a daytime talk show and explain in a very simple way a really complicated problem. And when as an educator you think, what would be the sensory start point for this topic? then you're you're challenging yourself intellectually in the same way and you're giving a grounding to that topic for all of your learners. I was taught when I trained to be a teacher that you have to split the class into three groups, your top set, your bottom set and your middle set. And generally we planned our lessons probably thinking of our middle to top set and then you just worked out something that the bottom set could just keep themselves occupied with whilst the others were doing that. And I... The um, start from the bottom and differentiate up is just something that I came across. It was just something that was easier to do in my practice. And I enjoy that intellectual challenge. So I mentioned that I have a sensory story called The Birth of a Star. Um, I had help writing that sensory story from physicists working at the Max Planck Institute, which is like the spiritual home of physics. I think there's been, I don't know, 153 Nobel Prizes awarded for physics and 45 have gone to people working out of Max Planck. So there's some good scientists there. And they helped me to describe in, I think that story has seven sentences how stars are formed in stellar nurseries. And then we have the sensory moments that go with each of those descriptions. So the start of the formation of stars is the hydrogen gas clouds. And I illustrate that in a sensory landscape by throwing up handfuls of confetti, which makes for a great visual experience because there's little particles and they move. And I sometimes do it using white hole punchings out of your hole puncher and I fluoresce it under a UV light and then when you throw them up it looks like a firework going off in the dark so it's a big visual things close up things far away and it's and it's accurate to the hydrogen clouds the dispersal of the confetti in the particle cloud is similar to the dispersal of the particles in the hydrogen cloud so you're giving a, a meaningful visual impression of what that is and then the next thing that happens is you get the gravitational pull of those atoms falling together and i run to seven senses generally on the sensory project so i do the famous five and then i also do your proprioceptive sense which is your awareness of your body in space and your vestibular sense which is motion and balance i do warn you once you start doing subconscious senses it's like gateway drugs and there's a tendency to slide into more um so i'm i'm, I'm very tempted often by a few of the others but i try and stick to seven because i've only got 10 sentences to tell a story and i want to cover all of the senses and if you if you want to get really technical you've got 33 sets of neurons that control your senses so arguably you've got 33 senses but it's a bit like stars in the sky it just depends how you group them how people count them I've seen counts up to 54 you know with people separating them apart but the the second part of that story is that gravitational pull and we illustrate that I've got a piece of bungee cord a piece of strong elastic and you hold on to it and I pull and so you feel the sensation of pull, which pulls, you know, pulls against your body, pulls through your vestibular, your proprioceptive system. And I would argue that the meaning of the word pull is there in that experience more than it is in the four letters that we choose to ascribe to that concept. It's a tangible thing when you feel the pull and, and so on and so on through the story. And it's really interesting because when I was working with those scientists to write the story, how similar the um some of them are working on 
cutting edge particle physics. You know, these are the guys who are, and girls, who are pushing forth the boundaries of knowledge. And their work looks remarkably similar to the sensory beginnings of stuff. One of them, their experiment was that they had um, thousands and thousands of tiny particles in a little glass tray and they shake them up and down and they watch. And they do that again, they shake them up and down and they watch. And, they, and they've been doing that for nine years. And that is pushing forth the boundaries of knowledge. That is because when you get to where we don't know, when you get to the end of theorizing and the end of what we know, what you have to do is look, listen, you have to observe and you have to observe in minute detail. And I know lots of autistic youngsters who are very happy to repeatedly do the same thing over and over again, to watch it with great interest. And other people will say, oh, they're, they're doing the same thing again. They've got stuck, they're bored. You're like, I wonder if they're, if they're seeing it in more detail. And I don't wonder if they're seeing it in more detail. The research around autistic brains shows that we are seeing things in more detail. We've got, we tend to be hypervisual. We process more visual information. And you could merrily diagnose a lot of those scientists with autism. And I don't think you'd be wrong very many times because it's a particular type of brain. And within that landscape, it's brilliant. And if you put it into a different landscape, not so brilliant. So I quite often think about finding the place that your brain belongs you know the place where you can thrive that analogy that people always give about moving the plant if the plant fails to thrive you don't blame the plant you put it somewhere else that that's a good one you mentioned being autistic yourself and one of the questions that we ask is how neurodiversity shows up in your life and how it's impacted you. I think I'm probably quite typical of a lot of um, autistic women who are identified in adulthood in that, yes, I was noticeably different from my peers at school. I, I only ate beige. I didn't used to flap my hands, but I used to sort of spin my hands. I didn't socialize with peers, but I was very good at following rules. I was very good academically. I didn't really cause any problems for anybody else. As somebody once said to me, um, autistic boys get picked up because they cause problems for other people and autistic girls just cause problems for themselves. And I don't agree with that as a statement because it's a much more detailed thing, but I can totally see where they got that broad brush from. Um, so I, I've, I was, from an educator's point of view, I was a very easy person to have in the classroom. Uh, for me, it was not very easy to be in the classroom. So if you'd met me as a six-year-old, as a five-year-old, you probably would have spotted that I was different. As I got older, I worked out more about how not to be different. I learned what I was supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do. And for most aspects of life now... <laughs> You have to be careful saying things like this out loud, don't you? Because it'll come back to bite you. I think I've figured most of it out. There are still gaps. Like, for example, I don't know how to catch a taxi. And my friends will say to me, well, just catch one, Joe. Just tell, tell the driver where you want to go. And like, it's not that simple for me. I need to know what I'm supposed to say. And, what, and, and I haven't watched a lot of people catch taxis. You know, I watch... I watched through my teenage years, I watched a lot of reality television programs because you see things in there like 
you know, how you interact with people in a supermarket or stuff like that. I, I know an awful lot about how to have a really terrible relationship from them as well. I need a few more documentaries on how to have like a loving and successful relationship. But your question was, how does it show in my life now? I think what people meet when they meet me in my work capacity is somebody who has a huge amount of knowledge about a particular topic that they can cross-reference at will, which is, you know, I'm living the autistic dream, aren't I? Because I've got an interest and people pay me to talk about my interest, you know? That's, I'm so, so lucky and I'm so grateful, but that's only very recently happened in my life. Um, up until, you know, this wonderful time, I was trying to survive in jobs where there are staff rooms. You know, and I'm very good at the jobs, but I'm very bad at the staff room. And I, I had it on my performance management in one of my roles. You know, you get an annual appraisal to see how you're doing. And they put it on my performance management that I should socialize more with other members of staff. And I took those performance management meetings very seriously. And so for the following year, I tried really hard with my social, I, I made sure that I sat in the staff room every lunchtime. I made sure that I attended the staff, you know, Christmas do and the, the end of the summer do and all of these things. And then I got to my performance management the next year and they put it on again because they considered that I hadn't passed it. And I was really devastated because I tried really hard through that year. And I don't, I, I'm very successful work-wise now but if you put me into that role, I would fail just as badly as I failed then. I haven't got any better. I haven't changed. I've just, I made up my own job. <laughs> and it's all the things that I'm good at and very few of the things that I'm bad at. And I manage that very carefully. So the only place that the difference really shows in my life now is in my very close relationships. I can definitely relate to what you're saying because, you know, one of the things that was a big struggle for me was I was not diagnosed with anything being wrong with me, but I always knew that I was different in many ways. And so what I learned to be really, really good at was masking and performing, right? Because it made me feel good and, and worthy and valuable as a human in society to say, oh, she's the, she's the good girl. She's the one that follows all the rules. She's the one that gets the really great grades. She's the one that doesn't cause any problems. So I did everything that I was supposed to do, but deep inside of myself, I carried around a lot of shame and confusion and guilt and not understanding why I couldn't just do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it because that in and of itself meant there was something bad or wrong with me because I might not want to, you know, read about that particular topic, or I might not want to go to math class because math wasn't my favorite subject or, you know, anything like that. So the idea of, you know, going through life like that, and then starting to realize that we come to a point in our maturity where we say, I'm going to choose me and I'm going to kind of push against what society is telling me I should or shouldn't be. And I'm going to start accepting myself for who I really am is a large step to make because you're not welcomed and received very well for doing that. People push back and they do these performance reviews on you. I've often been labeled as aloof or antisocial 
or, you know, like even my introversion to a certain degree has been used against me. Like, you know, you just don't want to go ever go have any fun. And it's like, no, my definition of fun is probably a lot different than yours. So I'm hearing a lot of those similarities in what you're talking about. And I'm also hearing too, you did speak a little bit about inclusion from the perspective of pity. And as an educator, I also have seen a lot of that where people were accepted into a group or treated a different way because people felt sorry for them rather than accepting them for where they were at and celebrating them for who they were. So could you talk a little bit about that maybe? Yeah, that's that's kind of two things, isn't it? Because one of the things that you were talking about there was masking. And uh, my most recent book is called The Subtle Spectrum. And it's about the post-diagnostic landscape of adult identified neurodivergence, because it seems as if there are phases that we all go through as we come to know ourselves in this way. And I'm looking for a positive, you know, like the stages of grief or the steps of alcohol addiction. If I could think of a positive, one of those, that's what it is, because we all um, have this, not it's all an individual journey, but there are similar patterns to it. And when I was diagnosed, I would have really welcomed a sort of map to tell me what to expect. You know, when somebody experiences a bereavement, being able to say to them, it's natural to feel angry. You're going to, you know, these things helps you when you come to those stages. And so I, I hoped there was a map and, and there wasn't. And people say, write the book that you wish had been there. And it's not like ordnance survey level map it's more back of a napkin here be dragons sort of a map but I in writing that book I looked into the research around autism both from the autistic community and from the neurotypical community I read lots of people's blogs and I am fortunate to have a, a wide network of people who contributed bits of their private life to that book so it's a book where the thread of it's held together by my personal story is frighteningly personal it's like somebody's published my diaries um but the content of it is the information from all those groups and one of the things that was very clear in the research is that masking is bad for us and so i i was taking in all this information i'm reading all these people and you, and and clearly you're supposed to stop masking but i worked really hard to learn this skill it's a bit like if you trained as a ballerina your whole life and somebody said oh you know pirouetting is bad for your toes you should stop it you're like I'm really proud of myself for being able to do this I'm really good at it at sometimes now I would say sometimes my social skills outrank the social skills of people who had them naturally because I've studied it I've thought about it far more than they have. And in certain situations, I'm doing, it's like the hare and the tortoise race, isn't it? In certain situations, I've I've gone, and I don't want to just stop. So you have this very complicated discussion in your head because you know that it's not doing you any good, but then you're super proud of this skill that you learned. And the ability to come out and be yourself, which is a narrative that, goes with a lot of minority groups is a very powerful thing for your own well-being but also those situations that we've encountered at work had I in that role been able to say I'm autistic this is why I'm not coming out socializing here's how I socialize those people were very willing to include me you know the reason that socialize more was on my performance management wasn't because they were picking on me for being weird 
it's because they cared about me and wanted to know me more. And if you can give people a handle on yourself, if you can go, this is who I am, if you know who you are and can express it to others, then people go, oh yeah, okay, I, I get it. You're not like me, but I'm fine with that. Most people are very willing to accept difference. And it's just the fear that comes from the lack of understanding that generates the prejudice. So you said about masking, and then you said about pity, which is a reference to my TED talk, which was called Inclusion for Pity's Sake, because there's this idea that when we include people who are learning disabled or who are physically disabled or who are neurodivergent, that it's something that we do for those people. Because, you know, it's so wonderful being us, you would want to be included with us. And of course, there's a benefit to them. But if you speak to people who work alongside these people or who have them as family members, they all say the same thing. They all say, I learned more from them than I taught them. You know, they've given more to me. I have benefited more than they have benefited. And I think that society is missing out in a very genuine way from experiencing the richness of human diversity, be that neurodivergence or physical disability or profound disability, like the people that I work on behalf of. Um, Because having that inclusion is a massive message that we are all different. We are all different, you know? And when we all look fairly similar, there's that idea that we should behave similarly, we should be the same, we should, and we all feel that pressure. And in a world that is inclusive, we are all more allowed to be our authentic selves. And that's good for everybody, whether you've got, you know, a label or a badge or a whatever it is. It, a more inclusive society is a society in which everybody is more able to be their authentic selves. And that's, you know, that's a nice, happy place. And I know it's, idealism and a daydream but it's something to work towards even if you never make it maybe I'm idealistic too but we actually baked this into our leadership development program catered to neurodivergent people the second pillar of our program is authenticity and really helping people understand and kind of unpack and digest that stage that you mentioned which is like well who am I if I'm not this performance? We actually empower people to say, you know, sometimes in order to navigate this world that we're in, picking up masking or some of those skills you developed is great, but when you can't be yourself, we're just perpetuating your own mental health issues and and not educating people on what it looks like to be an authentic version of you. And so like that authenticity in leadership whether you have a label or not, I think is what is the future of leadership mm-hmm. in this world anyways. And so even in your TED talk, which we'll post a link to is brilliant. You know, the thing that I was really touched by was just how you are so gracious in this idea that you said, if you could have said, hey, I'm autistic, that you have this idea that people will be accepting and that they genuinely innately want to understand more and so I think permission we can be to be authentic 
the more we can teach, the more we can teach, the more we can embrace. And I just think it becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. But maybe I'm just idealist too. I don't know. No, well, I mean, you and I can be diagnosed. It's part of my diagnosis, isn't it? That as an autistic person, you tend to think in these black and white ways and you tend to have very strong morals. How tragic. I think you've spotted something there, which isn't, you know, at the start, you said Joe's working to contribute to a future where people are understood in spite of their differences. That's the strap line that I use on my website. And when I describe the sensory projects, I say inexpensive, you know, creative, use the knowledge. I think what you've picked up on there is the thing that underpins it, um, which is that I fundamentally believe that people are good. I, I believe that so much. I, you like if you if you went around the baby ward at a hospital, you wouldn't spot a bad one, would you? I think people start out good. And I think all the grotty stuff is just human, isn't it? They're scared, they don't understand, and they've been hurt. And it's not malicious, it's not meant against you. And I think it's very difficult when you are part of a minority group. I don't want to say not to take it personally, because obviously it is personal and it is happening to you. But to understand that it, it's not about you, the the stuff that comes your way isn't because of you it's because of something that's gone wrong for that person because they didn't set out wanting to be stupid vengeful prejudice and I I quite often get to train teachers now I lecture I guest lecture on a number of teaching courses in the UK and I meet rooms full of student teachers who are about to go out into schools and I teach them about sensory stories and about inclusive practice and there's not one of them that sits back and doesn't take notes you know I'm the lesson that they listen to they are so on board that's who they aspire to be as teachers they aspire to be you know Robin Williams standing on the desk in the Dead Poets Society they want to be these great people and what happens is that they go into settings where they're not supported. They're not supported with time. They're not supported with, by other professionals. They're not supported with relevant training. And they are asked to provide for more students than they can possibly manage. And they begin to fail. And when they begin to fail to include those people, they don't have time to consider why. So they just see this failure and they know of themselves. They know that they are good people. They know that they are inclusive people. So it can't be because of them. It must be because that student shouldn't be there. They're in the wrong place. They don't belong in my class. There's a problem that's not to do with me. You know, that it's because I didn't get the support. It's because that student should be in a different setting. And you get that rejection. But you get that rejection because those are stressed, tired you know, you need time to care. If you can give them that time, if you can give them that training, that insight, if you can give them the handle on that person that helps them to go, oh, if I just said it in this way, I can flip this around. Then you actually, you, you can sometimes see the, like the light come back in their eyes as they go, I could still be Robin Williams standing on the desk. It's still a chance because you just end up. Uh, and I, don't, I know we're, we're talking across the pond. So you're in America and I'm in the UK. And I am presuming that teaching is a similar profession over there. But you just end up with people who are doggedly trying to make it to the next holiday. They're just trying to get to retirement. They're worn out. The job is not 
rewarding it's not what they imagined and that's not what they want any more than it is what the kid who's you know at the sharp end of that wants and as a as a little side because of that I so I provide training professionally I put up a series of very short training videos on YouTube they're just seven minutes long each and they are eight well I say they're seven minutes one's eight you know I was aiming for seven (laughs) minutes I'm not great at timekeeping but about seven minutes each and they are for educators who are supporting autistic students within schools and they are free so please go and have a look at them. They're called the oh, seven minute Senko and it's things that might be helpful to you for that flip. And I love that, Joe, because as an educator myself, the biggest and greatest and deepest lessons that I took with me throughout my career came from being baptized by fire and being thrown into a high school classroom of nine 10, 11th, and 12th graders with profound disabilities and having to teach them English at all those different grade levels so that they could prepare for an alternative assessment that we have here in the United States that sometimes doesn't even relevant to what these particular individuals are going to be required or even interested in doing outside of a secondary education. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening today. You know, if you're someone who struggles with masking, or understanding who you are authentically, or maybe you haven't found your place in the world or where your brain belongs, we're here to help. At Neurodivergent Leader and Parenting Beyond Labels, our team helps professionals, students, and parents raising neurodiverse children to navigate their way through the complexities of living and leading authentically in a neurotypical world. For more information, you can visit us at www.neurodivergentleader.com or at parentingbeyondlabels.com. And you can always find us on the gram at Neurodivergent Leader or at Parenting Beyond Labels. So tune in for the next episode and hear how Joanna's son became the youngest published author in the UK and why she's so smitten about it. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next episode. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. To register for an upcoming leadership workshop or to learn more about our one-to-one coaching and development programs, you can visit us at www.neurodivergentleader.com or follow us on Instagram at neurodivergentleader and check for the links in the bio. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.